Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Are We Really Listening to the Right Messages? Reflections on a Teenage Suicide. They're based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 5th, 2009. One week before high school graduation last month, a classmate of my daughter ended her life when she was struck by a train at an intersection near our house. This was the second student suicide at our high school in one month at the exact same place. A third student made an unsuccessful attempt when his mother and a motorist wrestled him off the tracks, again at the same location. And so shock, confusion, and grief marked what's normally the most joyful celebration of the school year. Last night I stood at that intersection, looking at the flowers and the poetry fluttering in the evening breeze. I wondered why Jean-Paul and Sonia felt like dying was better than living. They were two good, bright kids, according to my daughter. Sonia had been accepted at New York University as a theater major. They connected with friends at school and had loving families at home. They lived in a community of privilege and affluence and attended one of the best high schools in the nation. But in some sense, suicide is not a rational act, just like depression is not about sadness. Whatever the note says that Sonia left behind, it will never fully explain the tragedy. Suicide rates vary according to numerous risk factors like age, gender, ethnicity, health, genetic predisposition, family history, and substance abuse. Our gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered youth face increased risks of suicide. Assigning blame or speculating about simplistic explanations does more harm than good. Some suicides are related to depression and mental illness. Many parents have pointed to the unrealistic expectations that we place on our kids and the highly competitive nature of their high school experience. I've wondered, are we collectively pimping performance junkies? Whatever merit these explanations have, Sonia and Jean-Paul felt isolated and hopeless. And it's impossible not to wonder how our community could have done better. And so our schools will review protocols and counseling resources. At a community forum, a panel of experts discuss breaking the stigma of adolescent depression. Public safety officials will re-examine their role. And online forums enable an ongoing public discussion. But I've wondered, after reading the scriptures for this week, if we're listening to our kids. Are we paying attention as well as we could? Detecting obvious signals. Discerning what's directly in front of us. 
giving children the full attention that they need and deserve. Really and truly listening to each other does not happen automatically. It's more like an acquired skill and an intentional act rather than a natural gift. The scriptures this week are all about people not listening. A nation, a village, a family, and a church. They didn't listen. They ignored the right messages and embraced the wrong ones. After the death and public mutilation of Israel's first king, Saul, the house of Saul and the house of David waged a civil war over the transition of power. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Eventually, Israel anointed David as king when he was 30 years old, and he reigned for 40 years. We read in 2 Samuel 5 how David crushed his enemies as a war president. After he conquered Jerusalem, he renamed the city after himself. He renovated the city, built elaborate public memorials, and constructed a palace for himself. He forged political treaties and economic agreements with Hiram, king of Tyre. David took more and more concubines for himself. He took more and more wives and fathered more and more children. And when that wasn't enough, he took one more woman, Bathsheba, and murdered her husband Uriah. We read that David became more and more powerful. A national poet even rhapsodized about the city of the great king that, quote, God makes her secure forever, Psalm 48, verse 8. But those nationalistic ambitions and rhetoric were badly mistaken. Because 400 years later, Babylon conquered Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Enemy troops ransacked the city, subjugated the land, enslaved its people, and installed a puppet government. They left behind the poor and the weak for dead, and exiled the best and the brightest to Babylon. We read in Ezekiel chapter 2 how God called Ezekiel the priest as a prophet to those exiles. Ezekiel describes beleaguered Israel as a people of rebellion and revolt, as obstinate and stubborn. He describes himself as overwhelmed at God's call on him. The sacred scroll that he symbolically ate tasted sweet, but its contents were bitter indeed. The message that Ezekiel conveyed to the exiles was characterized by lament, mourning, and woe. Why? We read in Ezekiel 2, The house of Israel is not willing to listen to you, because they were not willing to listen to me. And in the Gospel from Mark 6 for this week, we read how many people did not listen to Jesus, including those who were closest to him. His own family tried to apprehend him. We read, quote, he's out of his mind. Neighbors rumored that he had a demon. 
The people of the synagogue ran him out of town to the edge of a cliff and tried to push him off. His own brothers didn't believe in him. Many in his inner circle stopped following him. And in the gospel for this week, his hometown of Nazareth tried to kill him as a deranged crackpot. They were scandalized by Jesus, writes Mark. And finally, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for this week, we read how the church at Corinth turned a deaf ear to the Apostle Paul. They complained that Paul was a two-faced hypocrite, bold in his letters but timid in person. In contrast to his weighty and forceful letters, they mocked his physical presence as unimpressive. His speaking, they said, quote, amounts to nothing, end quote. Invoking irony, Paul apologized for preaching free of charge and admitted that he was not a so-called trained speaker. The Corinthians much preferred some so-called super-apostles who commended themselves as superior and who were as slick as they were expensive. But Paul warned the Corinthians that these super-apostles were really pseudo-apostles who exploited them. And thus, the famous words of Jesus from Mark chapter 6, verse 4, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. People joke that the definition of an expert is someone who's at least 60 miles from home. True enough. But oftentimes, the clearest messages from God are the closest ones to us, like those from our own children. Our job is to pay attention and to listen. And on the subject of suicide in general, and teenage suicide in particular, at our Journey with Jesus website, we've listed several hot links to URLs, the National Institute of Health, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. For books this week, I review Barbara Brown Taylor, An Altar in the World, A Geography of Faith. New York, HarperCollins, 2009, 217 pages. In her 2006 memoir called Leaving Church, A Memoir of Faith, Barbara Brown Taylor told her story of how after ministering for nine years on the staff of a large Episcopal church in urban Atlanta, where she had lived half of her adult life, she moved to Clarksville in northeast Georgia a town of 1,500 people and two stoplights. The prospect of serving Grace Calvary Episcopal Church, with its tiny sanctuary that seated 85 people, was a dream come true for her, or so she thought. Her passion and competence spelled success, and after five years the church had expanded to four Sunday services. But in the process, she nearly lost her soul, and so she resigned, 
left church and in, a, and in 1998 took an endowed chair of religion at nearby Piedmont College. Since then, Taylor has lived with her husband on a working farm, becoming a regular speaker of note on the Christian circuit, and she's continued to write. For those who might wonder, Taylor might have left church, but she's by no means left the faith. And in this book, she self-identifies as a Christian. This is an important point because her newest book is not exactly or particularly Christian. This is not a criticism, but a simple observation. One of her goals is to abolish the distinctions we make between church and world, sacred and secular, spirit and flesh, body and soul. Any place or thing can mediate the sacred, and so we can make, as the title of the book says, an altar in the world as well as an altar in the church. Taylor draws upon her Christian experiences and tradition, but she also incorporates her knowledge and expertise from having taught a world's religions course at Piedmont College for ten years, the Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Muslim notion of pilgrimage, rabbinic wisdom from Judaism, or the Sufi mystic poet Rumi. She uses the word God, but also a semantic range of synonyms, all with capital letters like the real, the really real, the sacred, the holy, and the divine more. From these sources and her own experiences, Taylor commends 12 spiritual practices, but to call them spiritual can be misleading. For most of all, she commends a fleshly embodied spirituality. She writes one chapter each on vision, reverence, incarnation, groundedness, wilderness, community, vocation, Sabbath, physical labor, breakthrough, prayer, and then benediction. Taylor's book raised a cluster of interesting questions for me. Does an authentic Christian life look any different than a Muslim or Buddhist or a deeply spiritual atheist? Should it? Beyond obvious similarities, what are the significant differences? People who follow these 12 spiritual practices will live richer lives. And if that's the case, then what exactly does the gospel offer them? More of the same or something that they can't hope for anywhere else? I appreciate whatever intention Taylor had to write a so-called crossover book to people who want to be spiritual but not religious. But in the end, I wondered if this was just another self-help book by a deeply Christian pilgrim. In the introduction, she writes, Welcome to your own priesthood, practiced at the altar of your own life. Barbara Brown Taylor, An Altar in the World. For film this week, I review a movie from France, Lebanon, and the United Kingdom. The title, Under the Bombs, from the year 2008.
In the summer of 2006, Israel bombed southern Lebanon for 33 straight days, after which a ceasefire was declared. Almost 1,200 people died, and perhaps a million were made refugees. Under the bombs was shot on location after the ceasefire, and uses only two professional actors. Tony is a Christian taxi driver to, who takes Zania, a Shiite who has been residing in Dubai, to find her son and sister after the war. They search refugee centers, schools, and convents, and end their improbable journey in a monastery where only the inanities of war could explain the bizarre conclusion. The film effectively takes you to the center of the war zone. Bulldozers excavating mass graves, thumping helicopters deploying UN troops, bombed out roads and bridges that are only craters, and the rubble and pain of people's lives. Yes, the hatred keeps growing, says one young Lebanese mother as she stands in front of a shell of a building that used to be her apartment. The film is in Arabic with English subtitles. Under the Bombs And for the 4th of July weekend, we've posted a very interesting poem by the great scholar Origen. Origen lived from 185 to 254, and this poem or prayer is from his book Against Celsus. As you listen, hear how Origen suggests that the real role of Christians is not to join the government or the military, but we really help the king and the state by our prayers and our piety. And as we, by our prayers, vanquish all the demons that stir up war and lead to the violation of oaths and disturb the peace, we in this service are much more helpful to the kings than those who go into the field to fight for them. And we do take our part in public affairs when along with righteous prayers we practice self-denying disciplines and meditations, which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led astray by them. In none fight better for the king in his role of preserving justice than we do. We do not indeed fight under him, although he demands it, but we fight on his behalf, forming a special army of piety by offering our prayers to God. Origin of Alexandria Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 5th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.